After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will bring and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth. Good work on those tribal names. It's impressive. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to have you here. Good to, good to see all of your faces today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors, and it is my privilege to be able to open up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. And so if you are not already turned there, please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We come to one of the most pivotal passages in all of Scripture today, though for some it may be an unfamiliar one. It's a unique uh, story. If you're paying attention, you saw that. A lot of unusual symbolism and meaning and all kinds of things going on. But keep in mind, as we work our way through the book of Genesis, what we talked about in the very first week, which is this. The pattern that we see emerging as we move our way throughout this book is one of blessing, sin, and grace. Blessing, sin, and grace. We see it over and over again as we work our way through this book that God always works as the initiator. That he always initiates with a, with a loving encounter and that mankind in our arrogance and our forgetfulness will fail to recognize God's goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness towards us and we end up inevitably muddling things up. But unlike people in the way that we would typically respond to someone 
to someone spurning our kindness and our goodness, God always returns with a word of grace. He pursues his fallen people with a radical grace, and I use that term very intentionally. It's radical because it's so unexpected. It's rooted in nothing other than his love and other than his character. It's not rooted in anything that we've done. In fact, the only thing that we contribute, to paraphrase one theologian, to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And in chapter 12, what we saw was this exact pattern beginning to emerge. God had called Abram, this man who came from an undeserving, pagan, idolatrous background, completely devoid of any sort of understanding of who, of who the one true God, Yahweh himself, devoid of any understanding of who that God was. God appears to this man who's actively worshiping other gods and says to him, I want you to follow me. I want you to go to this land that I'm going to give to you. It's a land that you haven't seen. You don't know where it is. You don't know what it looks like. You're just going to have to trust my word. And when you get there, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you, in fact, a son who's going to be the object of the inheritance that I give to you. He's going to be the apple of your eye. He's going to be the father of many nations. In fact, in fact your offspring is going to be like the sand of the sea. And so Abram heads off based on nothing other than the promise of the one true God. He demonstrates miraculous, amazing, God-given faith in this moment. But as soon as he followed that call, in the first moment of hardship that he experiences as they find their way heading into Egypt in the midst of a famine, he doesn't trust that very same God with the simple protection of his family. He commits sin against God, he ignores the instruction of God, and yet... Following that pattern, blessing, sin, and grace, God miraculously intervenes in Abram's situation, saves him from the consequences of his own decision. And as we pick up the story this morning in chapter 15, Abram had separated from his nephew Lot, who, if you remember, had followed him out of Ur of the Chaldeans into this new promised land, and he had headed into this land called Canaan. God had promised to him in chapter 14 that every single spot that his foot touched was going to belong to him, that if he were to walk the outskirts of this land, God ultimately was going to give all of it to Abram. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 15 with these words. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, verse 1, in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. I want to just pause right here because God begins this whole address, this whole chapter starts with his very first promise. He starts by telling Abram, Abram, I don't want you to fear. Don't be scared. And I know, Abram, that you are. I have my eye on you. I'm protecting you. I'm looking out for you. No one and nothing is going to get to you. Nothing you're going to experience is outside of my control, is outside of my hand. Nothing that befalls you is accidental. Nothing is incidental to my purpose for you. And on top of that, as if all of that isn't enough, the promises that I've made to you are going to be richly delivered. Your reward shall be very great. And I think that this verse is easy to read past, but I think it's incredibly important because if you notice, God has already anticipated Abram's concern. 
Abram hasn't even voiced yet a pause, a concern, a a worry that he has going on in his life. In this moment, before anything has been spoken, God is already reassuring Abram of his presence. And I want you to notice that because think about the way that this plays out in your own life. I can tell you that some of the times that have brought the deepest sense of connectedness and appreciation between Jessica and me are when we anticipate one another's needs and married couples and all of those sorts of things. Certainly, you have experienced the very same thing. I think about, about nights where I know that our kids have been up a lot and sleep has been interrupted and, and there hasn't been good rest. And in those mornings where I'm, I wake up before her and I close the door quietly and I go get the coffee ready and I keep the kids out of the bedroom so that Jessica can catch up on rest, I know it's such a balm to her. It's such an appreciation, not only because she's gotten that extra rest, but because it demonstrated that I care about her. By nature, on the other hand, in terms of what Jessica does for me, by nature, I'm an introvert. I need my alone time, and so I enjoy being with people, and I love being with people, but it is something that takes energy from me. And so on on several different occasions when I've spent a lot of time with people or I've been out of the house for a long time and I come home and I'm just wiped out, Jessica will will come up to me and she'll say, I want you to know that I'm just going to gift you with a few minutes of silence. I know you need it, right? And so she'll take the kids and she'll give me a little space so that I can kind of recoup and regain some of my energy. And the reason that those things matter so much to us, the reason that they're so meaningful for us is because they show that someone else cares, cares about us. So how much more meaningful is it then when God himself assures us that he knows what we need? When he assures us of his presence, his protection, his provision in our lives. And he doesn't just, like I do, make an educated guess at what might be helpful. He knows your deepest desire and begins working things out for you even before you think to ask for it. He's in the process of providing for you long before you find yourself in the moment of desperation. One theologian said it this way, he rules with perfect wisdom over all the circumstances and locations that would make me afraid. God is so focused on his covenant children and if you know Jesus Christ in this room today, you are one of those covenant children. He, he focuses so much on his covenant children that the assurance that he offers is that we are always on his mind. Not just in our deepest moment of need, but every single moment that he anticipates our needs, he knows our needs, he's working to meet our needs before we ever are even thinking to ask for it. What an amazing demonstration of his love and his presence. Now, here's then the follow-up question. What was the need that God was addressing in this opening statement? We find it then in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is my servant Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Abram heard the reassurance of God. He heard the promise of God. He heard the words of God who had already given given him promises and delivered and made good on those promises in his life. But still, upon hearing the promises of God, he comes to God with a need for reassurance. And again, there's a lesson in this, which is God never tires 
of our failures. He never gets tired of hearing that request. He doesn't grow tired when we come to him saying, I know you said that, but do you really mean it? Are you really going to deliver? Are you really going to be faithful? I mean, that would drive us nuts if we give our word to somebody and they were to come back and say, I know you said it and I know you promised it and I know you've demonstrated good faith and you've followed up on everything, but I'm not sure that I still believe you. Can you give me one more sign that would get tiresome so quickly? But here, God doesn't get tired. He reiterates the promise and says, Abram, my plan is not for your servant to be your heir. I told you this before. I'm telling you it again. It's as if God is saying, didn't you learn from the situation in Egypt? Stop trying to manipulate and control your own circumstances. Trust me to do what I've promised you I'd do. See, for all of God's miraculous work in Abram's life and for all of his deliverance to this point, Abram can't get past his own control-free tendencies. And that echoes with us, doesn't it? Particularly if you're a self-admitted control freak in the room. Or maybe you're a control freak who's in denial. And if you're not in one of those two camps, you're probably lying to yourself, right? He can't get past his own control freak tendencies. He can't envision how God was going to bring about something that seemed impossible to him. And listen, when something in our lives is unsure or something in our lives is out of control, you only have two options as a believer in Jesus Christ. You can either trust God or you can worry. Like when it comes down to it, that's really the only two options. There isn't a third. You can either trust him to do what he said he would do, to deliver and to make good on his promises, his hand of provision, his protection in your life, that he's going to be your refuge and your shield and your great reward, or you don't believe he's going to do those things. And in that case, the only option you have left is to worry. Abram had every reason to trust God. He had no reason to doubt God's goodness or grace or tenderness or gentleness or forgiveness or any of those things. But listen, that doesn't mean it's always easy to trust. It doesn't. It's not always easy to trust God. Because trusting God means that you have to take your hands off the controls of your life. It means that you have to admit your own powerlessness, your own impotence, your own lack of understanding, your own inability to change things. And if you don't trust God and your hands are on the controls of your life in the middle of a situation that is out of your control, the only thing you can do is worry. And for a lot of us, we find worry to be comforting. It's our own way of, of soothing ourselves in a bizarre turn. Why? Because it it makes us think that we have some sense of control. If I'm worried, if I'm demonstrating concern, if I'm anxious, if I'm scared, if I'm sleepless, at least I can pretend that I still have control of my life. As if you being anxious about a circumstance in your life is going to will it not to happen or will it to happen in the way that you want it to. See, worry either leads to a preoccupied anxiety or it leads to the manipulation of your own circumstances. And the lesson for us in the life of Abram here is that God is not asking you to make things work out in your own life. Because to do so would be to presume that you know best how your life ought to go to begin with and that you have the ability to make those things happen. And neither of those things are consistently true. 
But God is also not asking you to envision how he's going to bring it about. What he's asking is that we trust him as our shield and our reward. That based on his faithfulness and based on his goodness and based on his promise, we're going to hand over the controls of our life to one who is inherently good and kind and gracious and trustworthy, that we depend on him even when, humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense to depend on him. It's so counterintuitive. It's so foreign to our thinking. And Abram's asking this question, well, how is my own son going to be my heir? He keeps saying that, but I don't have a son. And my wife and I are well past the age of being able to have children. And once again, anticipating Abram's objection, God decides to give him a real-life object lesson to assure, ensure rather, his faithfulness to Abram. He takes him outside, verse 5, and he shows him the heavens. And he says, Abram, I want you to look up at the stars, and if you're able, I want you to number them. And after Abram stands there for maybe five or 10 or 15 minutes trying to count all the stars because he is this anxious control freak person, he realizes the point of the lesson. Oh yeah, I can't. I can't do it. And God says, so shall your offspring be. So many that you can't even count. Now, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where the sky is so clear and unpolluted by light that you can that you can just see stars like this, but I've had a few occasions to do it. I've had times where I've been able to look up and say, oh, that's what people mean when they talk about a blanket of stars. Because growing up in the city, I'd really never seen that. But when you see so many, and maybe you lay down on the ground and you look up and it's disorienting and dizzying how many stars there are. And God is saying, against all odds, with all of your frailties and all of your idiosyncrasies and all of your worries and concerns and anxieties and physical challenges, all of these things on the table, verse six, Abram, upon hearing the word of the Lord, believes him and it says, God counted it to him as righteousness. Now we talked about this in Genesis chapter 12, but you see in this moment what we talked about three weeks ago, which is this, Abram was not saved by his own incredible faith. Do you see that in that text? He was not saved by his own incredible ability to follow and obey the Lord. Because if you read the very next passage, what you find is that Abram's belief is incredibly short-sighted. It does not last long at all. But this text emphasizes that Abram was entrusting, according to one theologian, entrusting his future to what God would do for him as opposed to what he could do for himself to obtain his promises. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like what we say almost every week, that part of what faith requires is that you trust God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. In other words, Abram believed that God was going to do what he could not do. What saved Abram was Christ's future righteousness being attributed to him, perhaps even in this specific moment. The same way that we are saved by Christ's past righteousness being attributed to us. And this is exactly what Paul is going to say in Galatians chapter 3. And again, just for your own reference, Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 both talk about this idea at great length, talking about Abraham's, Abraham's salvation being in Jesus Christ. But here's what Paul says in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit of God to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, by your own behavior? Or does he do it by the hearing of faith? 
Verse 6, just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, did you hear what he just said in Galatians chapter 3? That the gospel was preached before it was executed in Jesus Christ. It was preached to Abraham. The reason that's important to understand is that when we believe that on any level our salvation belongs to us, that our acceptance before God, that our righteousness in his sight is in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have set ourselves up for doubt and disappointment. And imagine for just a moment that Abram's salvation was dependent on his own ability in this moment to be faithful. If that was the case, if it was his own faith that saved him, then he would have lost his salvation by the time the next chapter rolls around. And he would have lost it a hundred times after that. We barely get into the next chapter before Abram loses this faith that he demonstrates. And that exemplifies one simple truth, that it is not your faith in Jesus Christ, ultimately, that provides your own salvation. It is Christ's finished work that provides your salvation and gives you the ability to have faith in him, according to Ephesians chapter 2. See, you were not saved by a decision you made or by a prayer you prayed or by a sacrament you observed or an aisle you walked or a lifestyle you've lived, you were saved only and exclusively by the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, on your behalf. And you can be assured that your acceptability was purchased by Jesus' blood on the cross. And what that means is that, as we talk about often, since Jesus Christ went to the cross on your behalf before you were ever born, And since on the cross he paid for all of your sins, which hadn't even been yet committed, you can stand assured right now that all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins you have yet to commit, are already forgiven in Jesus Christ on the cross. As the great Anglican minister J.I. Packer said, nobody can produce new evidence of your sinfulness that will make God change his mind. God justified you with his eyes wide open. But Abram, in this moment, fully justified by Jesus Christ's future work, fully accepted by God, fully loved and adopted, still struggles with his belief, just as we all do. Look what it says. And he said to him, this is God speaking, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, but laid them out. So Abram asks for a sign in this moment, a guarantee from God, a demonstration, a down payment, if you will, on God's good word. 
on what God had already promised he would do. Now, God, understand, has no reason to even give this assurance to Abraham. He doesn't owe Abraham anything in this moment. He doesn't owe him a sign. He doesn't owe him a a formal covenant. He doesn't owe him some sort of demonstration of his sincerity. But because of his love for Abram, he gives him this formal sign, this assurance of his promise. So Abram goes out, he gathers these animals, he obeys God's instruction, he, he collects them, he cuts them in half, severs them from head to toe, and he lays them out on sides, essentially forming a pathway in between. This is a pretty gruesome scene. He lays out the severed bodies of these animals on either side, essentially creating a passageway between the halves of these animals and these birds. And, and what we see happen in verses 12 through 18 is astonishing, astonishing. God causes this deep sleep to fall on Abram. And it says that a dreadful darkness fell on him. There's a little bit of speculation on my point, but I think when he describes a dreadful darkness, I think the reason that that modifier is used is not just to demonstrate the physical darkness that Abram experienced, but the heaviness of soul, psychological, emotional darkness that Abram in this moment is feeling a weight on him like he has never felt before in his life. An oppression in his heart. A darkness. It's the kind of darkness that is so deep that if you've ever been in the middle of a cave and tried to put your hand in front of your face and you can't see a thing. Disorienting and frightening. And God speaks to him in this moment and says, understand, Abram, that your children, who are going to be like the stars of the sky, so many that they are too too innumerable to count, I'm going to give them to you, and they're going to find themselves in a hard spot. They're going to have 400 years of enslavement. And he's predicting, prophesying in this moment, the enslavement of the people of Israel in Egypt. But then God says this, but I will deliver them, and I will bless them, and I will judge the nation that they served. Going back to chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And you, Abram, are going to die in peace at a ripe old age. Now, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Now, imagine, if you can, this moment. Imagine being so overwhelmed by great darkness, the sort of darkness that is black and heavy, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this blowtorch of a light. A light so bright, so intense, that it hurts to look at it. And as Abram's eyes adjusted, he realizes that this searing light is emitting from a flaming torch seated in a smoking pot. Abram in this moment is face to face with the unbridled Shekinah glory of God, a physical representation of the power and might and wonder and holiness of an eternal, infinite God. It's the same thing that we see when the children of Israel are led by a fiery pillar or when God settled in a fiery cloud on top of Mount Sinai. 
But as incredible as this picture is, what happens next is unbelievable. Because this flaming torch passes through the pieces of the severed animals. It's as if God himself is walking down this pathway between these sacrifices. Now, do you remember why all of this is happening? All of this is happening because Abram is saying to God, explain to me how I can know that I can trust you. How do I know I can trust you? How do I know you're going to do what you said you were going to do? Explain to me why I shouldn't be anxious about tomorrow and the next day after that and the next day after that. Explain to me why I should take the hands off the controls of my own life and stop manipulating my circumstances. Well, we know that in ancient civilizations, one of the ways that two kingdoms would establish a covenant between them was by going through a ritual very similar to this. They would select animals, they would cut them in half, they would lay them out, creating a pathway in between, and the two kings, the representatives of those kingdoms, would walk down, this, down the, the center of these severed animals. And in participating in this ceremony, what they were saying is, if I break my word as king of my nation to your nation, if I break my word, if I don't do what I've promised to do today, may this be done to me as has happened to these severed animals. It was a way of saying, if I don't follow up on my word, I'm gone. Cut in half, severed, everything about me no longer exists. In this moment, God himself is establishing a covenant with Abraham. He's establishing the formal one-way covenant, one-way love toward Abraham. And as the collateral, the down payment for this covenant, God swears on the only thing capable of providing this sort of guarantee. He swears on his own identity, his own character, his own glory, his own being. And only God walks through the center of those pieces. Abram does not. God is saying, in essence, if I break my word to you, May the character, the essential being of the God of the universe be torn apart. That's so central to God's character and nature is his faithfulness to his promise that he is willing to swear on it before mankind. If I don't make good of my promise, may I be torn apart like these animals. Wow. Wow. but Abram never walks through the pieces. God doesn't call him to. He is under no obligation to God to make these promises a reality. He is entirely dependent on God's faithfulness and goodness to bring to fruition what he promised would happen. And what in the world does this obscure story have to do with us? How can you know, brother and sister, that God will never leave you? How can you know that he will not abandon you? How can you know that he has not forgotten you? Because God, not you, carried the burden of your salvation. This passage 
is a perfect picture of the gospel that was being preached to Abraham. It is a clear gospel message. It's what Packer said when he said, God established his relationship with you with eyes wide open. God knew that Abram was going to screw up again. He knew that Abram was going to sin. He knew that Abram was going to fail. He knew that Abram was going to fall. He knew that Abram would never be able to hold up his end of the bargain if he was to give Abram that end of the bargain. And so God didn't give it to him. God said, I'll take it all on myself, every bit of it. And in the very same way we're told in the book of Ephesians, he knew you before the foundation of the world. He ordained that you would belong to him. He called you to himself. He justified you through his son, Jesus Christ. He sanctifies you through the power of his Holy Spirit. He promises that through all of this, he will glorify you to his presence one day. That you didn't pursue a relationship with him. And to the extent that you think you pursued it, it's only because he initiated. That he set his love on you, that he created you, that he walked through the pieces to affirm his love for you. So how can you know when you have those moments where you begin to question your own salvation and you begin to doubt God's goodness or you doubt his presence or you doubt his kindness or you doubt his faithfulness when you fail for the fifth or the hundredth or the thousandth time with that same old sin, how can you be assured that God still loves you and has not abandoned you and will keep his promise to be with you to the ends of the earth and give you eternal life to be enjoyed with him? You can be assured because it all depends on him. All of it. Because God showed that he was willing to do everything for you when Christ went to the cross. Because the brutality of the picture in Genesis chapter 15 has nothing on the picture of the brutality that Jesus Christ experienced. as the sin of the world, yours and mine, were put onto the body of Jesus Christ. And as the wrath of God poured down on him, at no point did he say, that's enough. I'll do this much for them, but no more. I've done enough. They can carry their end of the load. At no point does he say that. No, he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop. So that, Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's what we sang about earlier when we said, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. It's not my obedience. It's not my ability to follow the law. It's not my ability to stop sinning. My holiness can only be found in the one who lived a perfectly holy life on my behalf. And the lesson for you and for me through the life of Abram in this moment is that if you can trust him with your eternity, which is what you're being called to do, if you can trust him with your eternity, then you can trust him with your tomorrow. 
So how do we deal with the everyday anxieties and the worries and the stresses and the unknowns and the poor diagnoses and the messy families and the broken marriages? How do we deal with the hurting relationships and the forgiveness that we can't seem to extend and the guilt and the shame that we feel? How do we deal with loneliness and longing? How do we deal with fear? We trust the one who has said, I will never, ever, ever leave you. I will never forsake you. I stick closer than a brother. To the ends of the earth, I will be with you. And if at any point we wonder like Abram did, how do we know this is true? We remember Genesis 15. We remember We remember the fiery pillar walking down the center of those pieces and we remember what all of that symbolized in its full completion on the cross. I love you this much, says Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, to the extent that he loves Abram, he loves you just as much. And to the extent that you're worried, remember the worry that Abram experienced and where his ultimate hope had to lie. It's the only thing, God is the only thing that is able to carry that kind of weight in your life. And he's guaranteed you of his faithfulness. Let's pray together. God, I'm so blessed by the wonder of a text like this. There's so much in it and so much beyond what we've even had time to talk about today. But God, I thank you that in texts like this, what we are assured of is the fact that you are the one who is faithful to fulfill your promises, that our salvation and our future rests fully in your hands. And God, I thank you that you have not given the burden of our own salvation on us to carry because inevitably we would mess it up. I thank you, God, that since you, through Jesus Christ, took all of my sin, including the sins I actively right now commit and any sins I will commit in the future, since you took all of those on yourself and since you've separated them as far as the east is from the west, I can be assured that when you purchased my salvation, you did it with eyes wide open. You knew what you were getting and you did not blink. And because of that, I can rest assured that if you can handle my salvation and my eternity, then you can handle tomorrow. So God, we confess that we don't believe that. At least that we don't consistently believe it. But Lord, we want to believe it. So God, in our moments of doubt, insecurity, fear, and failure, would you remind us of this promise so that we can cast our anxieties and our cares on you because you care for us. And it's in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.